This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by Abbott's Freestyle Libre 2, the world's leader in continuous glucose monitors. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Medical experts joined the Post to discuss the state of diabetes care in America, including the high cost of insulin and the little understood link between COVID-19 and diabetes. Let's listen. Welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Paige Winfield Cunningham, author of the Health 202 newsletter here at The Post and a health policy reporter. And today we're talking about diabetes in America. And for my first guest, I'd like to welcome Dr. Rita Kuliani. She's Associate Professor of Medicine at Johns Hopkins University. Welcome to Washington Post Live, Dr. Kuliani. Thanks so much, Paige. I'm glad to be here. I'm looking forward to to our conversation because, of course, this is a hugely important topic. You know, every time we talk about chronic health conditions, massive health spending in the U.S., diabetes is a central part of this. Um, but to just kind of lay things out for our audience first, we, when we talk about diabetes, the, the, the vast majority have type 2 diabetes and then a small subset have type 1. Can you just kind of briefly lay out the two types and what the differences are between them? Sure. So... As you mentioned, type 2 diabetes accounts for 90 to 95% of the diabetes, both worldwide and in the United States. One diabetes accounts for about 3 to 5%, and then there are other subtypes and specialist subtypes of diabetes as well, including diabetes that round out the, the number. So when we talk about diabetes in America, the vast majority if not almost all have type 2, but also type 1 diabetes is particularly important as well. Well, and we know that type 2 is typically found in adults and type 1 typically diagnosed in children, although sometimes type 1 is found in adults. I'm actually one of them. I was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes about five years ago around the age of 30. Um, Can you talk a little bit about how common type 1 is in adults and do we know what causes it? Yeah, that's a really great question. So as you uh, as you noted, type 2 diabetes used to be called adult onset diabetes, and it was more commonly noted in adults. And now as we see the rise of pediatric obesity, uh, particularly in adolescents and ethnic minorities in particular, we're seeing type 2 diabetes in our younger population as well. Conversely, type 1 diabetes, which used to be called juvenile onset diabetes, uh, was more commonly seen in children, but we are seeing uh, diabetes in adulthood, um, as, as you shared as well, your story. And it's not as common, but we're increasingly recognizing that some people who had been diagnosed with type 2 diabetes may in fact have type 1 diabetes as we do further testing. Well, and I know, of course, one of the biggest differences between type 2 and type 1 is that type 2s typically don't require insulin, although I know some do use it. Type 1s always require insulin. Um, and I know there's been a growing awareness in recent years over the high costs of insulin, uh, some patients even rationing it. Do you see that uh, among your own patients? And how big of a concern is the cost of insulin to you? 
The cost of insulin is a big concern. And as you mentioned, type 1 diabetes, usually patients have to be on insulin from the get-go. This is a, a disease where there is autoimmune destruction of the cells in the pancreas, the beta cells that produce insulin. And so usually people with type 1 diabetes require insulin from diagnosis. Whereas patients with type 2 diabetes, where the underlying physiology is what we call insulin resistance, the body doesn't respond to the insulin that the pancreas produces as well as it should. And therefore, insulin is not as effective at lowering blood glucose. Usually we can start off with oral medications or pills or even some non-insulin injectable medications too. But about a third of patients throughout the course of their disease will require insulin. And this is different for each patient. Given the high numbers of people with both type 1 and type 2 diabetes that use insulin, clearly insulin cost is a big focus. And over the past decade, we've seen a tremendous rise in the cost of insulin that far outpaces uh, inflation, almost 300% for some of the synthetic or analog insulins if you look at their current list price compared to where they were 10 years ago. And especially during the pandemic, these increasing costs burdened with the economic hardships that many people in the United States are facing makes it increasingly difficult to afford and to use insulin as prescribed. Do you ever personally experience this where a patient comes to you and says, hey, I'm having trouble affording my insulin, what do I do? And if, as a doctor, if you hear that from a patient, what's your response to that? What can you do? It's really difficult to hear when you have a patient in your clinic and you really want to do the best you can for them, prescribe them medications based on the latest evidence, prescribe the medications that you know will reduce their complications from diabetes in the long term, and then not have the financial resources to afford it. And these social determinants of health, these other factors are just as important to address because we can only prescribe the medications, but if the patients can't afford them, that's really where we need to be focusing our efforts. And yes, I definitely have had patients in my clinic come and say that, at times, they've had to delay the refill of their insulin because they're waiting for their next paycheck. And this is particularly disturbing when we're trying to reduce the burden of this widely prevalent disease and its complications. So let's focus on type 2 for a minute, because as we noticed, noted, this is millions and millions of Americans with type 2. Um, as a health policy reporter, I tend to think about this disease a lot just from a cost perspective. One dollar out of, out of every four dollars spent on healthcare in the U.S. goes to diabetes care. Can you talk a little bit about the impact if we found a way to, to, to dramatically reduce the number of, of type 2 cases in this country? That's an interesting question. You know, what we've seen uh, demographically is that the number of cases of diabetes, if anything, has increased. And currently we have more than 30 million people in the United States with diabetes, another 88 million with prediabetes who, if they don't get the appropriate interventions, which is usually lifestyle and weight loss, may progress to diabetes. So we are anticipating or projecting that the number of people with diabetes will continue to grow, particularly as the population ages and people are living with diabetes longer. We have new treatments and people are maintaining uh, a longer lifespan. So if we could reduce the number of cases of diabetes, 
through preventative efforts to address prediabetes earlier on, through weight loss, through education, through dietary changes, through healthier neighborhoods. This would dramatically impact not only the societal and personal burden of this disease, but the economic burden as well. And that would be fantastic uh, to focus our efforts on, on, on ways that we can reduce diabetes in particular, and then reduce the costs of the disease. Who's most at risk of developing type 2? And then out of those who do develop type 2, uh, what types of patients are at most risk for developing long-term complications from the disease? So those who are most at risk of developing type 2 diabetes are people who are overweight or obese. And when we say overweight or obese, we usually use a metric called the body mass index, which is a ratio of the weight to height. And usually a BMI greater than 25 is considered overweight for the general population and greater than 30 is considered obese. Now in Asians, those cutoffs are a little bit different because we know at the same body weight, Asians carry more percentage body fat than other ethnicities. And so in Asians, overweight is considered a body mass index of 23 and obese is considered a body mass index of 27.5. And so clearly overweight and obese are two factors that are main drivers and main risk factors for type 2 diabetes. And perhaps not surprising what we use to screen when we're screening for people with diabetes. Other major risk factors include age. Age over 35, 40, 45, older age in general is a risk factor for diabetes, type 2 in particular, because the body becomes more resistant to insulin as part of the process of aging uh, in general. We also know that ethnic minorities are at higher risk of type 2 diabetes. This includes Hispanics, African Americans, Asians, and Pacific Islanders as well. We additionally know that women with a history of gestational diabetes have a 50% lifetime risk of developing diabetes, and they also need to be carefully monitored. And then other risk factors include having a known diagnosis of prediabetes, a history of heart disease, high blood pressure, cholesterol, and in women, a history of polycystic ovarian syndrome. Well, and of course, as we all know, if diabetes, whether type one or type two, isn't managed well, it can lead to a whole host of extremely scary outcomes and very serious conditions. Uh, can you talk a little bit about those consequences? And then what are some medical advancements that you think have helped reduce the risk of those complications? Yeah, Paige, that's a great question. So we think of complications from diabetes really in two major categories, what we call the microvascular complications and the macrovascular complications. All of the complications from diabetes that we traditionally describe are due to damage of the blood vessels in the body. Microvascular complications are due to damage of the small blood vessels in the body. And this includes damage to the eyes, what we call retinopathy, damage to blood vessels in the kidneys, what we call nephropathy, and damage to blood vessels in the nerve, what we call neuropathy. And then macrovascular complications are damage to the larger blood vessels in the bodies, those that are in the brain that can lead to stroke, uh, those that are in the heart that can lead to heart disease or heart attack, and those that are in the legs that can lead to peripheral vascular disease. And so based on results of large trials that were done in the 1990s, specifically the United Kingdom Prospective Diabetes Study in Type 2 Diabetes and the Diabetes Control and Complication Trial in Type 1 Diabetes, both those hallmark trials demonstrated 
by lowering blood glucose as measured by A1C, which reflects average blood glucose over three months, by lowering A1C to below 7%, People with diabetes, type 1 or type 2, the results were consistent in both of these trials, could reduce the risk of microvascular complications over time. And these studies were done over 10 years, and then they were people were observed for additional 10 years after the trial was over. The evidence for macrovascular reduction, so reduction in heart disease, has been a little bit more difficult to demonstrate. In both these trials, Benefits for reducing heart disease and stroke were only seen in the long-term follow-up and not in the initial trial period. And so we've sought other ways to reduce cardiovascular disease through modification of cardiovascular risk factors and the use of some of the newer glucose therapies that we have as well. Uh, I want to turn to uh, the coronavirus and talk a little bit about the link between diabetes and COVID-19. and. Of course, you know, di diabetics have been disproportionately represented among those hospitalized and who have died from COVID-19. Um, but I think sometimes it's easy to get sort of tangled up in what the actual causes, uh, you know, whether it's correlation or causation. When you're thinking about this risk, the risk for serious COVID-19 illness, do you think it's more related to diabetes or is it more related to obesity often being a factor in these cases? Can you kind of untangle that for us a little bit? Yeah, that's also a really great question. So there's been multiple hypotheses proposed for why people who have COVID-19 are more likely to develop diabetes. In fact, in one uh, meta-analysis, which synthesized results from multiple studies um, that was done uh, last year, it was reported that up to 14% of hospitalized patients with COVID-19 had new-onset diabetes. And so we know that when people undergo a stress response that, or a tremendous inflammatory response as occurs with COVID-19, this can put the body under stress and in those who may already have risk factors for diabetes, push them over to edge to rising blood glucose, particularly in the setting of steroid use, which is often used uh, pretty early on with COVID-19, severe COVID-19 infection, and to the development of diabetes as well. And so whether this is related to a direct effect on the cells that produce insulin, the beta cells, and there have been some theories proposed that COVID-19 may bind to receptors on the beta cells and then enter the beta cells and disrupt insulin uh, production, or whether it's due to inflammation in the pancreas, the organ where the beta cells live that then disrupts the insulin uh, production as well, it's not clear. But we know that people with diabetes are at greater risk of severe complications from COVID-19. And as you mentioned, obesity is also an important coexisting illness for many of our patients with type 2 diabetes, and that further exacerbates the risk of severe complications. It's been an interesting question to me because, you know, I've had lots of people come to me and say, aren't you at greater risk for complications because you're type one? And I'm never quite sure what to say because, as you know, type one and type two are such different diseases and sort of get lumped together. Uh, do you have any thoughts on that? Are type ones also at higher risk uh, as well as type twos? Yeah, you know, it's interesting when the high-risk conditions were first listed by the CDC, it only listed type 2 initially and not type 1, and that was really primarily due to not having enough information at that time. And now we have type 1 and type 2 both listed under those high-risk conditions to consider at high risk for complications. So, yes, 
you know, and whether it's related to the greater risk of hyperglycemia, having higher blood glucose during COVID-19 infection that can then predispose to complications, it's, that's likely the unifying uh, mechanism by which any type of diabetes really can put an individual at increased risk for complications from COVID-19. Well, and you referred to that really, really interesting um, uh, finding that 14% of patients with severe or rare cases had developed some sort of diabetes. Uh, and I know we had a story in the post on that. Do we know whether these cases are temporary or permanent of these patients who developed it seemingly as a result of COVID-19? That's another great question. And I think we're learning more as people are recovering from COVID-19 and we're following them long-term. There is an ongoing registry of patients who've developed diabetes during COVID-19 infection that is in the process of gathering this information. And I think this will give us further insights into whether this was a temporary you know, condition uh, that occurred or whether this is something that is more long-term and people live with this disease after COVID for many years. And that will be something interesting to see in the month. What do you think the overall impact of the pandemic has been on diabetes in the U.S.? I know I've read a lot of stories about how we've all been gaining weight during lockdown, maybe less active. Uh, and I know overall it has had seemed to have a negative effect on people's health. Um, are you concerned that this is, is kind of feeding into this increase in cases or what has the effect been? There have been far ranging effects. I think all the way from, as we've already talked about the hospitalization and severity of complications to even for those who have not developed COVID-19, a fear, a fear of going into uh, seeing their health provider. And we know from surveys that in patients with diabetes, up to half of them report that they are reluctant to seek their routine preventative care during the pandemic. And as an endocrinologist and a, and a clinician that cares patients with diabetes, this is concerning because we rely on routine preventative care to detect complications early, to manage the complications before they become severe. And what's happening is as patients are coming back into the clinic, we're finding that they may have had complications that could have been detected much earlier on. And we know that patients are not getting the same access to healthy foods. They, they've reported this in the same questionnaires, about one in four report that they don't have same access to healthy foods during the pandemic as they did before, largely due to financial hardship. And many of them are substituting food for medication, like we talked about, given limited resources. And so we're seeing far-ranging effects of the pandemic, both in those who develop COVID-19 and have diabetes, but also those that have diabetes and don't have the infection, but may not be having the same preventative care or access to care for multiple reasons. And I know we'll be talking about telehealth in the, in the next segment, but this has forced us to think a, a little bit more about our care models and how we can best reach our patients with diabetes during the pandemic to get them the care that they need. Well, and we're almost out of time, but want to throw one more question at you. Even if we, if we take COVID out of the equation, we're still seeing cases of diabetes go up. What are the top things you think we need to be doing in the U.S. to really take this seriously and try to counter it? 
So clearly prevention is a big theme. Um, as, you met, as we talked about earlier, if we can prevent diabetes, if we can target those with prediabetes or other risk factors early, this can lower the societal and economic burden of the disease. I think we need to better understand our unique populations that may be more vulnerable to complications, such as the elderly, which will represent a greater proportion of the population with diabetes in the future. Women, gestational diabetes, this is a high-risk population as well, where we need to have increasing efforts for education and follow-up. And then pediatric obesity and diabetes is, is a big area as, as well. And then clearly the cost of insulin, this has been at the forefront, but we really need concrete efforts to address this going forward. Well, we're out of time, so we'll have to leave things there, but thank you so much for joining me, Dr. Rita Kulyani. Thank you. Uh, it was a great conversation and I appreciate it. Thanks so much, Paige. Well, please stay with us. I'll be back in a few minutes with Drs. Jennifer Raymond and Aaron Neinstein in just a few minutes. The following segment was produced and paid for by a Washington Post Live event sponsor. The Washington Post newsroom was not involved in the production of this content. Hello, I'm Jean Mazur. About 10% of Americans have diabetes. However, African-Americans are far more likely to develop the disease. Here to talk about that disparity and what to do about it, we have Jared Watkin, who is Senior Vice President of Diabetes Care at Abbott. Also, Tracy Brown, Chief Executive Officer of the American Diabetes Association. Tracy, let me start with you. Can you talk about some of the obstacles, some of the barriers that people in underserved communities have to get treatment and care for this disease? Yes, I mean, as you have said, uh, Jean, diabetes is one of the uh, most pervasive chronic diseases out there with one out of two people in this country living with diabetes or prediabetes. When you actually start to put that lens over top of people of color, what you learn is that people of color are 50% more likely to actually have diabetes and believe it or not, African-Americans are about 2.3 times as likely to die from, from diabetes. And so you, you have to ask yourself, what is really going on if you think about the fact that medicine has improved, science has improved, technology has improved, yet diabetes has not improved at all here. And so you ask yourself, are people of color genetically sicker? Well, of course not. What is happening here is this has to do with the inequity that exists. This has to do with the lack of access, affordability, and quality care that exists. When you think about people who are in these underserved communities, the uh, uh, incidence of diabetes goes up when you are living in either a food desert or a food swamp. When you look across America, a large portion of, of communities of color are in these uh, you know, food deserts or food swamps. So it's really a pervasive issue. Jared, is Abbott helping to address these issues? Uh, yes, Jean. So Abbott develops products and solutions to address some of the world's largest health challenges. And as part of that focus, we recently published a 2030 sustainability plan that is centered around designing access and affordability into our life-changing products. And our goal is to be improving the lives of 3 billion people globally by the end of the decade. In the area of diabetes itself, like, like the ADA, we believe that access to breakthrough technologies should not be out of the reach for people who can benefit from it the most. So take, for instance, our Freestyle Libre Continuous Glucose Monitor. 
It really is a revolutionary technology that removes many of the burdens of glucose monitoring and gives people the information they need to manage their diabetes and live healthier lives. But to us, that sort of innovation without access is frankly meaningless, which is why we took a unique approach from the start with Freestyle Libre and designed it to be both simple to use, but also critically affordable. And when we introduced Freestyle Libre uh, to the market, it was priced at a fraction of the cost of other CGM systems. And we have introduced next generation versions such as Freestyle Libre 2 in the US recently with additional features such as optional real-time alarms and enhanced accuracy, but we've continued to maintain that same initial low price to maximize access and affordability. I understand that Abbott is partnering with ADA. Tell us a little about that. So I think critically, Gene, Abbott and ADA share the same vision that all people living with diabetes should have the opportunity to lead healthy, full lives. To help address the current health and economic disparities that we see, Abbott has made a three million, sorry, five million three-year commitment to support the ADA's Health Equity Now platform. And this will help support their advocacy and community initiatives, championing the right for all people, no matter what their income level, race or background, to have access to the latest medical technology. Our Freestyle Libre technology has already transformed the lives of more than 3 million people globally. But with more than 415 million people with diabetes worldwide, you can see you've only just scratched the surface to this point, which is why partnering with such leading organizations like the ADA is so important. Tracy, COVID has really put a spotlight on diabetes. Um, what have we learned? Gene, we've, we've learned quite a bit. As you say, um, you know, diabetes in this country was a health crisis and epidemic before the pandemic. And what COVID has shown us, um, some startling facts, 40% of the people who have died from COVID-19, Gene, have been people living with diabetes. What we've learned during this COVID time is that 50% of low-income Americans have lost some or all of their income. And when that happens, it makes it very, very difficult for you to manage your diabetes and condition. One out of five people during this COVID-19 time have actually uh, had to choose between buying food and their diabetes medicines and supplies. And 43% of people living with diabetes have delayed routine care. You know, I believe that, you know, everyone has the right to thrive while living with diabetes. I am someone who has been thriving and living with diabetes for 17 years. Having access to great health care and having great health, I believe, is a human right. And so everyone should have the opportunity to the latest and greatest advances in technology. For me, technology has been a game changer. I myself wear a CGM. And it has actually changed my life, if you can see that. My blood sugars are right where people who don't have diabetes, that's what I'm living right now. And it's come through access, affordable access to quality care. Tracy Brown, Chief Executive Officer of the American Diabetes Association, and Jared Watkin, Senior Vice President of Diabetes Care at Abbott. Thank you both for joining us today. And now I'm going to hand it back to the Washington Post. And now, back to Washington Post Live. Welcome back. If you're just joining us, I'm Paige Winfield Cunningham. And my next guests are Dr. Jennifer Raymond, Division Chief for the Center for Endocrinology, Diabetes, and Metabolism at Children's Hospital Los Angeles, and Dr. Aaron Neinstein, Professor of Medicine and Director of the Center for Digital Health Innovation at the University of California, San Francisco. Welcome to both of you. Hi, great to be here. Thank you. Thank you for having us. 
let's start out with technology because we've seen massive advancements in the devices and tools available for those with diabetes. And of course, chief among them is the CGM. I've got mine here right on the back of my arm. And um, I can testify that this device is a complete game changer when trying to deal with blood sugars. Um, Dr. Neinstein, let's start with you. What is a CGM device and how does it work? Can you explain this to our audience? Yeah, so amazingly, as far as they've come over the last two decades, uh, continuous glucose monitors or CGMs still work in the very same way that they did when they were first out on the market uh, around the year 2000. And so, whereas with a traditional finger stick, you poke your finger, you get a drop of blood, and you put the drop of blood on a test strip, and it reads what your blood sugar is in that moment, with a CGM, you're inserting a small wire sensor underneath your skin, uh, and that sensor stays there uh, with the current devices anywhere between seven days and 14 days. And it actually, there's a chemical reaction that happens on the sensor. It creates an electric signal, and that signal is converted into what your glucose level is in your subcutaneous fluid. And so it's not directly measuring your blood. The, the wire, the sensor is not sitting in your blood. It's sitting in the tissue just below your skin. Um, but the advantage is that rather than getting a single point in time, like you do with a finger stick uh, blood sugar, you're actually seeing the ups and downs and the undulations of your blood sugar throughout the day. Um, and the accuracy of these devices have gotten to the point where the FDA uh, has now said that you can use them. They're accurate enough to be used for insulin dosing decisions. And so the accuracy is nearly equivalent to uh, the accuracy with finger stick blood sugars. And so you're just getting an immensely, uh, immense more information uh, through the CGM because you can see what your blood sugar has been doing throughout the course of the day and, and watch it change uh, through the day. Well, and it's been compared to like driving without the CGM, you're kind of driving blind, you're seeing your blood sugar at those mm -hmm. points in time. But then with the CGM, you can really see it all day long and try to stay between those two points on the road. Um, but I know that very few people with diabetes actually wear CGMs at this point. I think it's even a pretty small minority of type ones. Dr. Neinstein, why, why is that the case? Why aren't more people wearing CGMs? So the good news is that in the last 10 years, use of CGM in people with type 1 in particular has gone up dramatically. So uh, at the start of the last decade, about 5 to 10 percent of people with type 1 diabetes were using continuous glucose monitors. And now estimates are at close to 50 percent of people with type 1 diabetes have continuous glucose monitors. Of course, that means that Half of people with type 1 diabetes do not have continuous glucose monitors, and that is, is a really unfortunate shame because it is considered standard of care today for people with type 1 diabetes, and everyone with type 1 diabetes should at least be offered a continuous glucose monitor. Some people may choose for personal reasons that they don't want to wear one, but everyone should at least have the opportunity to have one. I think in the case of type 1 diabetes, while it is standard of care, uh, we know that in the, in the medical community that uh, guidelines and standard of care take a long time to sort of seep out into the community. Um, uh, many people in the United States who have type 1 diabetes are not cared for by the specialists who take care of diabetes. Uh, our field, Dr. Raymond and myself in, in endocrinology, 
And so many primary care physicians may not feel comfortable prescribing or managing patients uh, who use continuous glucose monitors. And there are still uh, some issues at times with insurance coverage. And one of the things that uh, is a common misunderstanding is that uh, while many insurance plans cover continuous glucose monitors, they do put a lot of barriers in front of us between the prescription of the CGM device and the patient actually getting the device. And so oftentimes, even if an individual has insurance coverage, there's a lot of uh, paperwork and bureaucratic barriers, such as the need to have a doctor's note every three months to certify that you still have diabetes and therefore qualify. So there are a lot of systemic issues uh, that are standing in between people getting the CGM device that they need today. Dr. Raymond, I wanna to go to you because I know CGM has been, had a huge impact on kids that are type one. Um, can you talk a little bit about that uh, and how other techni technological advancements have really helped parents and children with type one? Yeah, um, so thank you for that question. I really appreciate it. Um, so I'm a pediatric endocrinologist and care for um, children as young as, you know, uh, one year up to 25 years of age. Um, and I think prior to continuous glucose monitors being available, um, families or parents, specifically of the younger children, were not able to to know kind of as you and Dr. Neinstein both had shared, see that full picture of what glucose levels could look like during the day. And so there was very appropriate um, fear for their children and specifically our youngest um, kids are not able to tell us um, when their blood sugars might be off um, or in specifically lows or um, lower blood sugars that we're concerned of. Um, so with the continuous glucose monitor, we're getting data every five minutes. There are types of continuous glucose monitors that also send um, information to others. So in a share type app, so a child could be wearing a continuous glucose monitor and their parents and their teachers, um, babysitters or whomever can also have access to their blood sugars. So it allows for one, someone kind of always able to give the information, you know, that those caring for someone with diabetes would need. Um, two is the ability to have alerts if there is a low, specifically overnight. Um, we know um, previously, and I, I still think now, um, once a child is diagnosed with diabetes, um, they will often move into their family's room or the family will move into their room um, so they can sleep with them overnight to make certain that they're safe and not having low blood sugars. So this has allowed um, families to have more comfort and confidence overnight. And then conversely, it's allowed children to be able to spend more time doing the things that they normally do um, without needing to stop and check their blood sugar. It's allowed kids to be more active, whether it be in sports or spending time with friends um, with that safety in mind. And then thinking of our adolescents and young adults who are driving and spending more time on their own, um, it allows for a kind of monitoring of their blood sugars during that time to ensure that they're safe. Um, the other piece that I think is an incredible move for technology within our field is that continuous glucose monitors are now working with insulin delivery devices, such as insulin pumps um, and eventually insulin pods. And the continuous glucose monitors actually um, 
change the insulin dosing in response to the blood sugar, which is just a huge step in our field and, and an opportunity to allow even more safe um, management of all of our um, individuals with type 1 diabetes. Well, and I'm glad you mentioned the closed loop system because uh, I'm, of course, very interested in that. And we're seeing more and more, and more uh, opportunities arise for people to use these systems. Dr. Raymond, uh, when you're talking to parents and kids about trying to convince them to adopt some of these new technologies, what are what are their fears? What are their concerns? What are the barriers to really getting patients to kind of embrace this? Yeah, I love that question and I appreciate you asking it. Um, as someone, so at Children's Hospital Los Angeles, I care for a population that's predominantly publicly insured and from um, disadvantaged um, backgrounds. And so there, um, the insurance actually has some um, stipulations, which Dr. Neinstein said, um, related to being able to move to these technologies. So sometimes for patients and families, the concern is whether or not insurance will cover it and then how much needs to go into that, kind of as we were even discussing earlier, the expense related to diabetes care. And so there are definitely concerns around that. Um, and then as somebody who specifically works with adolescents and young adults, one of the things that I think um, can be a concern about any device is having something on your body that identifies you as having something different from your peers. So having devices, whether it be a continuous glucose monitor or an insulin pod or an insulin pump and seeing tubing um, that uh, may result in people asking questions as well as if you haven't disclosed um, that you are living with diabetes to others, that can, that can be a concerning um, conversation for a young person to have. So I think the biggest barriers um, or concerns are related to, um, I think providers are concerned about insurance. Um, I think we also know that um, providers may actually make um, assumptions related um, to what a patient and family may want without actually talking to them. There's data on that. Um, but for patients and families, it's really um, wearing the device um, can be of concern. Um, and then um, accuracy of the device. When you are familiar with another system, there's always a concern with, with changing. Um, so I do think um, now we have the opportunity to allow patients and families to see different devices, maybe even wear a different device for a short time period, which can really help address some of those concerns. Um, and then really starting with working um, with young people on how do they share or um, about their diabetes or talk to others about it so they can feel comfortable with wearing something um, that might identify uh, their diabetes. Well, and I, I can certainly resonate with that. I remember when I first started mm -hmm. wearing these devices, it felt really strange. And I can imagine if I had been a teenager, yeah. it would have been that much more difficult. Um, but mm -hmm. we've been talking about uh, technology for type one. Let's talk about type two a little bit. And Dr. Neinstein, mm -hmm. if you could answer this, uh, what are the medical innovations available for type two diabetes? And that's a question from Dick Fleming uh, of Missouri. And I would add to that, do you see type twos using CGMs and is that something you recommend? Great question. Yeah, so absolutely, this is, a, this is a really fantastic question. And I think it's also important to recognize that when we think about type two diabetes, there are different categories of people. And as we think about what technologies and treatment opportunities are available, there are categories of people who are earlier in the phase of diabetes, and we call those people, uh, we say that they have prediabetes. There are people who have type 2 diabetes who are not using insulin at all, 
There are people who have type 2 diabetes that take basal insulin or one long-acting injection of insulin per day. And then there are people with type 2 diabetes who, similar to people with type 1 diabetes, take multiple daily injections of insulin per day. It is considered standard of care now to uh, be using continuous glucose monitoring for the latter group of people, for those who are on multiple injections of insulin per day, where there is still a, a lot of questions and, and even controversy is around the use of continuous glucose monitoring in some of those other populations. Now, we know that one of the most important ways that we can deliver therapy to people with, with type 2 diabetes is on lifestyle education and coaching and, and helping people uh, eat healthy, exercise more, sleep better, reduce stress. And a big part of that is around coaching about behavior change for people who are living with the condition. We know that today the, the tests and measurements that we use, the hemoglobin A1C and finger stick blood glucoses are not effective um, there's, there's evidence to show that they're not effective for helping guide people towards behavior change. And what we're hoping will happen with continuous glucose monitoring, as Dr. Raymond was talking about, it's really uh, giving people much more information in real time about, I just went for a walk around the block and here's what happened with my blood sugar, or I just ate a slice of pizza versus I just ate a salad and here's the difference. I can see the curve in my blood sugar and I can see what happened and what the differences are. And so there is definitely research that still needs to be done to help understand how often people should wear continuous glucose monitoring, which of those different types of people with type two diabetes will benefit, whether use of continuous glucose monitoring by itself will be beneficial or whether it needs to be paired with, with a coach or a service that's helping guide people and, and, and give them feedback and information uh, while they're using the continuous glucose monitoring. All of those questions still remain, but uh, I have a, a strong belief that um, we're gonna see the use of continuous glucose monitoring really increase in people with type two diabetes and that we'll see uh, many yeah. benefits come from there. The, uh, the other thing that's really important in terms of innovation in type two diabetes is from a medication standpoint in the last decade, we have several new classes of medications uh, that tr where traditionally the focus was really on preventing the microvascular complications, complications with your eyes, your kidney, your feet, uh, with treatments for type two diabetes by, by lowering blood sugar. We finally have classes of medication that are increasingly being shown to help us prevent cardiovascular disease or the macrovascular complications of type 2 diabetes. And so it's very important, you know, people think of innovation and technology and they think of the devices that we're putting on people's bodies, but perhaps the greatest innovation in type 2 diabetes in the last decade have been this innovation in, in the pharmacology and the therapeutic agents that we have. And so if you have type 2 diabetes and you've been on the same medications for 20 or 30 years, it's really important to talk to your doctor and ask them about the newer medications that have come along over the last 10 years and whether those might be appropriate for you because they now are available not just helping prevent cardiovascular disease, but also potentially reducing the amount of insulin you need, helping people lose weight, they really are offering a totally different way of approaching type 2 diabetes than, than we had in the past. Yeah, that's a great point. 
Dr. Raymond, uh, virtual care has become uh, really arisen and become more of the norm during the pandemic. What's your experience with telehealth in treating diabetes? I know that a lot of times you don't you don't necessarily have to sit with the doctor physically. <laughs> we do have to get labs done as di as diabetics. But uh, what's your experience there? And do you hope that telehealth will continue even after the pandemic is over? Yeah, I love this question. And I have to tell you, Dr. Neinstein and I are huge proponents of virtual care. So I'm grateful for the opportunity to talk about it. Um, I'd actually done research in um, telehealth or virtual care for about seven years prior to um, the COVID um, transition in March of 2020, um, which was incredibly um, wonderful for for our team and our patients and families here, um, because we actually used that research model to transition to almost full virtual care um, during uh, that, that time in March and then have continued that. Um, what I can say or what I had learned prior to um, COVID and with our research are that are is that even with young adults who are a population who really do have challenges sometimes with managing their diabetes and even coming to regular appointments, um, telehealth allowed them to be able to come to attend appointments more frequently. And I think it's really um, a process that respects the competing demands that they have, but also all people living with diabetes. So we saw an increased attendance in visits. We also saw a decrease in diabetes distress, um, which is very significant for those living with diabetes. Um, and we saw improvements in their um, self-efficacy or ability to manage their diabetes, as well as their communication skills. Um, and so we used that model, again, to um, expand our care um, model within um, Children's Hospital Los Angeles. And so we moved to about 90% of our visits in um, March, 2020, being a telemedicine visit um, or a virtual care visit. Um, and then over that time, we've just continued um, telehealth. Right now we have about 1,800 or 1,900 total visits in our division per month and 600 to 700 of those are virtual visits. So we're doing about a third to 40% of our visits by virtual care. Um, I feel very strongly in continuing this um, for all people living with diabetes. I also have to say that I think we need to do our due diligence with um, thinking about the model and paying very close attention to disparities and inequities that may arise from the use of virtual care. And I think many of the previous um, speakers and experts had shared this concern too. And I think COVID just highlighted disparities that we see in people living with diabetes. And I think virtual care can be an amazing tool for us to address those inequities. And I want to make certain with next steps as far as for the future of telehealth um, that we pay close attention to patients and families and those living with diabetes so we can design something um, that really does help meet their needs and also allows them um, to be able to continue with their other daily activities. Well, we've talked a lot about these great tools uh, at, at the disposal of people with diabetes, but of course, what we really want, I think, is a cure for diabetes and specifically <laughs> for type 1, because of, of course, mm -hmm. right now it's it's incurable. You're kind of stuck with it for the rest of your life. But the experimental drug uh, teplizumab has been generating a lot of buzz in the type 1 community. Dr. Mm -hmm. Neinstein, can you explain what this drug does and the promise that it holds? Yeah, um, happy to. And I, I 
Before talking about teplizumab, I also want to just sort of double click on the point Dr. Raymond made, because as we're talking about continuous glucose monitoring and new medications in type 2 diabetes, it, it is absolutely true that the future of diabetes care is here, but it's unevenly distributed. And we have uh, lots of evidence to suggest that across closed loop therapy for people with type 1 diabetes, continuous glucose monitoring, and these newer agents such as GLP-1 agonists and SGLT-2 inhibitors for type 2 diabetes, uh, that people of color and those populations are not getting equal access to those medications for a variety of reasons, some of them related to insurance coverage and some of them actually due to likely uh, prescribing doctor bias. Uh, there are studies showing that prescribing doctors are less likely to prescribe uh, both these technologies and uh, medications to uh, people of color. Um, going back to teplizumab, so teplizumab is an anti-CD3 monoclonal antibody agent, which more or less means that it interferes with your immune system. So in type 1 diabetes, uh, we believe that the insult is an autoimmune attack or your body's own immune system attacking the insulin-producing cells that live in your pancreas. And so teplizumab interferes with that immune response that your body uh, is inappropriately creating. And uh, it was a very exciting study published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2019 that was the first time that any agent had been shown to delay the onset of type 1 diabetes. So this was in children and adolescents. It delayed the onset by about two years of people who were thought to be at risk for type 1 diabetes uh, the people who received the placebo um, versus the people who received teplizumab. There was about a two-year um, delay in the onset of type 1 diabetes. Uh, actually, just published in March this year, March 2021, was an extension of that study uh, and showing that the effects continue uh, to live on and that teplizumab continues to delay onset uh, of type 1 diabetes um, I don't have the uh, the exact percentage at, uh, um, memorized at the moment, but uh, it is continuing to delay onset of type 1 diabetes uh, by a very impressive amount. And so it's a very exciting moment because this is the first therapeutic that might become available for this purpose. It is, of course, still not a cure. We're talking about delaying the onset of type 1 diabetes once people's uh, insulin-producing cells, the islet cells of the pancreas, uh, are destroyed. We do not currently have a way to regrow them other than in some rare cases where we do use islet cell transplants. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, unfortunately, mm -hmm. we're out of time, so we'll have to leave things there. But thank you so much for joining me, Jennifer Raymond and Aaron Neinstein. It was such an interesting and insightful conversation. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Well, please come back and join us tomorrow at 9 a.m. when my colleague Karen Temelty will interview House Majority Leader Steny Hoyer. As always, thanks for watching. I'm Paige Winfield Cunningham. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.